The Gospel, a Basic Truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings today. We're going to look at the testimony of the Apostle Paul as to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think, as we all know, Paul was an incredible individual great evangelist, a missionary, a church planter, and of course a theologian. He wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament, possibly 14 depending on the book of Hebrews. Now Paul's greatest work uh, was Romans, and certainly we could find the gospel in all of his writing, but the book of Romans is uh, magnus opus. The first 11 chapters are, are really all about the gospel. And then 12 and the rest of the book is about the application of how we act out the Christian faith. Uh, Looking at 11 chapters is beyond the scope of this podcast series. Uh, So we're going to look at just the heart of uh, how we presented the gospel. And to that, we look at Romans 3, 21 through 26. I'll read that now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, there's a lot of stuff here. But essentially in these verses, Paul really hits all of the issues of the gospel. Previously, as he's writing in Romans uh, 3, 1, 2, and 3, he's explaining how no one is good enough. Because the righteousness of God, if we look at the Old Testament, was through obeying the law of Moses. And no one could do that. And so the the Jews could never say that they were righteous before God. And, of course, Paul goes on later and says, and neither are the Gentiles. They don't have the law, but certainly their own conscience condemns them for when they they sin. And with that as buildup, we come to verse 21, and Paul's going, yes, There is a righteousness of God, but it's apart from the law. And then he goes on to tell us that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law of Moses talks about the perfect which is to come, and of course the prophets, we have many prophecies about the new covenant that will come. The righteousness of God that he is saying comes through Jesus' faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, there's no distinction whether Jew or Gentile. Because everybody has sinned. No matter what measure you use, everyone has sinned, everyone has fallen short of God's glory. Oh, now we get into some key words. So all are justified by his grace as a gift. So God is just. What does it mean to be just? Well, a just God judges sin. It holds people accountable for wrongdoing. Think about our current society. People in high places who are not held accountable because of who they are, 
shows that our system is unjust because important people are not punished when they perhaps should be. Paul is saying, but God is just, and so he, he must punish sin. But this righteousness of God will not only show that he's just, but it'll show that he is gracious and that his grace is a gift. Again, what is a gift? A gift is unmerited favor, getting something you don't deserve. Paul writes these long sentences, but the grace comes to us through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And how is that so? Well, Paul says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And I'm laughing because it's a big word. Well, what does that mean? You might have another uh, translation that says, um, an atonement of sacrifice. Okay, how does that help? So God is going to judge all sin, and Jesus is going to be the one who pays the penalty. His blood is the, the atonement, the propitiation. God pays our traffic ticket by the blood of Jesus, and we receive it by faith. So again, it is a gift. We don't deserve it. We simply receive it by faith. And again, faith is to believe in what we do not see. Now, look at what Paul's done. He's going, look, God is just. He has to punish sin, and he, he is righteous because even though he waited for thousands of years to judge sin, and to have a, a punishment for it, he did it in his divine forbearance. So he waited but before judgment was given, and then, of course, through Jesus Christ, he takes the punishment of that. All which to show that as of now, today, God has shown his righteousness, he has judged sin, he is just, and he does it through this just wonderful gift of grace. So God is both just and the one who justifies us through faith. Now, there is a lot of stuff there. Uh, you would do well to sit down, take your magic marker, your uh, yellow magic marker, your, your pencil, and kind of circle words, kind of look them up, and, and just really spend a lot of time looking at, at, these, uh, at this passage. It's also a good passage to take someone through, like a friend or family member, because you've got a lot of issues here. Now, as you listen to this podcast series, you'll know that I think it's important that we memorize Scripture. Now, I know it's not easy. I can tell you at 17, I could memorize anything. And today, I struggle. So, so I understand. But yet, I think it's important. So we're going to spend the rest of our time in another passage that Paul gives of the gospel, which you can memorize. For that, we turn to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is a great memory verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Friends, we could stop right there. That's the gospel. It's about as simple as I can get it. By grace you have been saved through faith. But Paul adds more. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. In essence, after he gives the gospel briefly, concisely, he says the same thing three times over. We'll get back to why that's important at the end, but for now, no notice all those, look at that word again, gift. He's saying, you know, salvation is a gift of God. It's not by anything you've done. and it, There's no works that you can do to get it. No, no one can boast. And he says it three times. Why is that? Why is it important to emphasize for Paul? Well, Paul is a very gifted person, I, I think, as we know. 
Paul was the kind of guy that when he was in high school, he always had his hand raised because he always knew the answer to the question the teacher had. When Paul went off to university, he was the kid that got the Rhodes Scholarship. Paul studied with all of the best famous teachers. He knew all the A-listers. Okay? He, he, was, he was very zealous. He was a type A++ personality. Okay? Now let's compare him to the Apostle Peter, which we talked about last time. Peter, in contrast, knew day one he didn't have it. Three times he turned Jesus down to be a disciple. Finally, Jesus says, okay, Peter, I'm going to paraphrase now. Okay, Peter, I know you think you are a fisherman, but I can use you. I can use your ability as a fisherman to make you a fisher of men, and I can make that happen. You just have to come along. So Peter knew that he, he couldn't do it. But Paul was the kind of person who thought he could, at least initially. Paul was a guy who was uh, just always there and never gave up. Let's kind of compare it to some folks close to home. So we are very fortunate in the city. We have the Olympic Training Center. We have young men and women who are the best in in our country, and they are in their sports, and, and they are training and doing whatever it takes to, to win the medal, to show that they are the best in the world. The, the, these are people who don't give up. Okay? They don't know what failure is. They, they just work because they are sure they're going to make it. You know, up north of the city, we, we have the Air Force Academy. And, uh, and similarly, we have young men and women who spend four years under some very grueling uh, challenges, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, they're constantly being pushed beyond their comfort zone, and, and they take it, and, and they just keep going. I, I would dare say these, are, these two groups of young people do not know the word failure. It is just not in their vocabulary. They will not fail. About 40 years ago, there was a study done by a couple of instructors at the Air Force Academy. I happen to know one of them. Now, <clears throat> 40 years ago, they had interviewed, I don't know, hundreds of alumni, and they, they put out a little report. Now, since then, in the last 40 years, there have been many, many more studies, probably more statistically rigorous and uh, insightful. But going back to this study of 40 years ago, they get to the end of their conclusions, and they make this one off and say, well, we've interviewed hundreds of alumni. Uh, graduates, and we can say that we never met a humble graduate. Well, you know, that's kind of snarky. So let me say that in a politically correct way. What they were saying is they interviewed a lot of graduates, all these graduates, and all of them were self-confident. They were confident in themselves, they were confident in what they were doing, and they were confident in what they would do in the future. And I dare say that is the same of the Olympians. They are people who have self-confidence, and they need to, to do what they're doing. So Paul comes into this as a person who has every reason to be self-confident. And I'm going to talk about three areas now. Paul has reason to be confident in the flesh. He has reason to be confident in his great labors in all of the things that he did uh, for the gospel. And he has reason to be confident because of his visions. 
Well, how is God going to use somebody who's self-confident? You know, in many ways, the story of Paul, you don't see it on his face, but as you look deep into the story, you realize Paul is broken by God until he comes to the end of the life and can say, yeah, it's all a gift. Now, let's start out with a confidence in the flesh. Paul was a, a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. And I'm reading now, I'm going to read Philippians 3, 3 through 11. So he is writing to the church in Philippi, and apparently some of the false teachers are bragging about this or that and why you know, the people, the Christians there should believe them and not Paul. And so Paul starts out by saying, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, the, and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That sounds like a confident guy, right? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, and that's according to the law of Moses. He is of the people of Israel. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he he says, I was blameless. As a young man, decided to go a deep dive into Judaism, and he became a Pharisee. Pharisees were a sect in Israel who tried every effort to obey all the laws of Moses. Okay, do all the kosher stuff. But in addition to that, Pharisees had these distinguished rabbis, and they had many, many oral teachings. So including all of the law of Moses, there were all these oral teachings that were on top of the law, not part of the law, and Pharisees were trying to obey all those too. And if you recall from reading the New Testament, you know that Paul calls the Pharisees several times on that and says, okay, yeah, the law says this and you say that, now let's look what's wrong with what you're doing there. Paul says, I am a real Jew. I am a pure blood Jew. I am essentially saying, I'm a descendant of Abraham. You know, I I was circumcised on the eighth day, so all the law of Moses was fulfilled in my life. Now, I, I know many people who, both men and women, who have converted to Judaism. Are they Jews? Yes. Are they descendants of Abraham? No. And there's nothing new about this. Middle Ages, there was a country in Eastern Europe called Khazaria, and they converted to Judaism. And, and, and the people there, Khazars, became Jews. And many, perhaps a, a good deal or most, of Eastern European Jews are not descended from Abraham. They're Khazars. They're still Jews. But Paul is saying, I have reason to be confident because I can say I'm a pure blood. I go back to Abraham. And very zealous when it came for the law, because I was the first one to say, yeah, let's go persecute the Christians. And then what happened? Paul had a conversion experience. The Lord Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. Jesus Christ met Paul in his glorified, resurrected form. Paul is knocked off his donkey, and he is blinded. And Paul's like, "Uh, who are you? Uh, I'm Jesus Christ, who you are persecuting. Paul eventually is taken to Damascus. He's in a house. He's laying on a bed for three days, doesn't eat, doesn't drink. He can't see. He's totally blind. And no pun here, but his life passes before him. 
he realized that there is a Christ. He's met him. And then through Ananias, one of the believers, he's told, and now you are going to be commissioned to go to Gentiles, people who you don't like because you're a Pharisee, and you're going to take the gospel to them. Years ago, we were living in England and knew a woman in, I can't remember the context, but in this conversation, she was referring to somebody and she goes, oh, they were God-smacked. <laughs> like, what? Well, I'm not sure what she meant, but I, I think that is a good word or term to say what happened to Paul. He's on the road to Damascus, and he was God-smacked, knocked off his donkey and blinded. And so here's what Paul says now, out of all those things that he had reason to be confident in, but whatever gain I had for those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Some translations will say filthy rags. In order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. By any means possible, I admit that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, who had reason for all these things, now realizes, I'm going to go be <laughs> an apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm going to say, hi, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, and they're going to go, who cares? And I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and I'm going to say, I'm a pure-blood Jew, I was descended from Abraham, and they're going to go, who's that? He says, I realize all the things I did in the flesh, they count for nothing now. Friends, I, I grew up in a working-class home, and 40, 50, 50 years ago, people in that area typically did not go to college. I was fortunate I was able to go to university. And now, of course, later in life, most of the people I know have gone to college or uh, you know, are professionals of some kind. Invariably, we all have in an office at home on a wall our diplomas, our professional licenses, all of our great accomplishments. We call that an I love me wall. I realize not everybody has an I love me wall. Um, my uh, father was a common labor, manual labor. He had a broken trophy from 1949 uh, when he played high school football. And uh, through most of his life, until he got cancer, he played on the volunteer fireman's slow-pitch softball team, and, and he was the pitcher. And he was well-liked, and he didn't get to choose, but had he been able to choose, I'm sure at his funeral he would have wanted to get buried in his, his baseball uniform. I say that to say that we all have things to be proud of, to be confident in our life of. But go throw them in the garbage can, because Paul says they have no value. The second area that Paul had reason to be confident in is his greater labors and his persecution for the gospel. Now, we know that Paul made three, at least three missionary journeys. Uh, if we take a look and read through the book of Acts, you look at all of the nations, cultures, different groups of speaking people where he planted churches. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that's comparable. Very, we got, my wife and I got saved, and very early on, we got involved with a church that was involved in missions. And so we are very committed to missions. And in our case, we think that we are called to, to support individual missionaries and missionary families, okay? Anyway, that, that's just our conviction. So 
spent a lot of time with missionaries. You know, I've been through all the perspective classes. I know a lot about missionaries. I don't think anybody can compare to the work of Paul in missions. As I said, he wrote at least 13 books. I mean, he is the consummate theologian of, of Christianity. You know, who else has done all that work? You, you, there is no apostle that, that has done this kind of work. And along the way, God, God smacked him <laughs> over and over. I'm reading now 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to start in verse 21. Paul is saying, and again, he's talking to the people in Corinth about some false teachers, different situation, and he goes, referring to, I, I believe, some other <clears throat> Jewish teachers. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they the servants of Christ? I am a better one. How about that for confidence? He goes, I'm talking like a madman. And then he goes on, but I have had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Now catch this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. I think if you work that out, he was, he was whipped 40 lashes less one, five times. That's 195 lashes. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A day and a, a day and a night I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness. Uh, there was danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You know, I toiled and I had hardship. I had many sleepless nights. I was hungry and thirsty. I often went without food. I, I was in cold and extreme. And apart from all that, there was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety of, of all the churches that I had planted. So, who is weak? And am I not weak? And who has made the fall? And am I not indignant? All right. I don't think anybody, I mean, you can go look at Fox, Fox's book of martyrs. I, I, I don't know of anybody that's had more persecution other than our Lord Jesus Christ than, than Paul here. You know, you could take pride in that. As I said, we got saved many years ago, and, and it was in England, and uh, at the uh, local Air Force base, there was a couple of young airmen who had recently been saved, but they were going to a, a different church downtown, and I got to know them a little bit. And in their church, it was a very zealous church, and in their discipling program, they were told, if you don't have, if you're not undergoing persecution, then either A, you're not saved, or B, you're not working hard enough. I mean... You're not walking with the Lord. And so as a result, they were very aggressive in their witnessing. Uh, one might call it bad breath witnessing because they kind of were in people's faces. Uh, and that included some of their co-workers and the sergeants over them. And as a result, uh, they were ridiculed and persecuted. And they were so happy. Ah, I'm being persecuted, so now I know I'm okay. Well, Paul had every reason to take pride in being persecuted, and he's saying, yeah, don't do it. Now, it's very possible that, as I said, we, we know that he was imprisoned at least twice, once in Israel. Uh, we know about his first imprisonment. We believe, although Scripture does not say he was imprisoned a third time in Rome, but that he probably was. And, of course, he was martyred, and we, we, we believe the year was 64, 65 A.D. But Paul says... No, 
God has allowed me to suffer so much persecution. I got it. I, I don't have any confidence or, or faith or, or pride in any of that. It's, it's been knocked out of me, so to speak. The third area that he could have confidence in is his visions. Now, I talked earlier about his conversion. He's on the road to Damascus, the light from heaven, uh, the voice of Jesus Christ, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And then later on in Acts chapter 9, but the Lord said unto him, to Ananias, another believer, but go, because this Saul, to be Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, that certainly came true, as we had just looked at all the persecutions of Paul. But the point here simply is, he had a conversion experience where he met the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ who spoke to him and personally gave him a mission. You know, you want to talk about purpose-driven people? Yeah, he, he was purpose-driven because he was personally commissioned to go to the Gentiles. Now, let's look at the second vision. And this we can find in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, starting verse 1. And so I'm going to read some of this as we go along. So once again, uh, he's talking to the folks in Corinth and uh, some of the other teachers that had come through who had been boasting and perhaps not teaching correct doctrine. And so Paul kind of picks up there and he said, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained about it. I will go on to the visions and the revelations of the Lord. Now, here's where it becomes very fascinating. He starts out about his vision in the third person. It's sort of like you go to the pastor or a counselor and you say, well, I have a friend and my friend has a problem. And what you're really saying is, well, I'm the friend and I'm embarrassed to talk about it, so I'm going to talk about it in the third person. So he actually starts talking about his vision in the third person, and there's a point where he then goes into first person. But it's clearly he's, he's talking about himself. Paul says, I know a man in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. The third heaven was just their way of talking about, you know, heaven where Jesus, excuse me, where God and the angels are. Now, whether this man was caught, was caught up in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Again, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And this man heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And then he goes, on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. I'll stop here. I'll continue in a minute. But So we were in seminary, and uh, you, know, you take the seminary uh, theology classes. Uh, you take systematic theology, and then you always have to take a couple in historical theology. So one historical theology class I took was a great professor, and he was talking about the medieval church before the Reformation. The church had been struggling, and in many ways it had become a very works-based religion. Perhaps not everybody, but certainly it was common in the Middle Ages. And that, of course, was what drove the Reformation. 
So if you'll pardon the language here, uh, people in the Middle Ages uh, had a workspace philosophy for salvation, and they were working to beat hell. The problem with that is, when do you know if you've worked enough? How, how do you know you've worked enough to get into heaven? All right. Well, at that time, uh, people kind of developed this idea that if you received a vision from God, so if you received a vision of Mother Mary, perhaps angels, maybe you received some vision of heaven, or heard the voices of God or angels, that obviously showed that God approved of you. And so that was an indicator that you had the ticket. Okay, so if you received a vision, then you knew that you were saved and going to heaven. Now, in seminary, we were told this is called the beatific vision. That's what everybody wanted before the Reformation was to have a beatific vision so they would know, I'm going to heaven. So Paul had at least two visions. You could be proud of that. Now, he has spoken in the third person, okay, and then he goes into first person, and he goes, but I'm not going to boast about it, although I could. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, first person now, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, not of the beatific vision. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I count with weakness. I, count, I, I, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, there are a few people in the Christian faith that have suffered and has done as much as Paul. He is a man that had incredible talents and reasons to be confident. And yet now, in Ephesians. Ephesians is what we call a, a prison epistle. So these were written when he was in prison in Rome. With the possible, possible exception of 2 Timothy, Paul does not write anymore after the prison epistles. He could have gone on a fourth missionary journey, but we don't know if he did. So now everything is behind him, essentially, as he's writing Ephesians. All right. He's experienced all the things that we just talked about it. And he's like, okay, let's get down to the bare minimum. By grace, you have been saved through faith. By grace, I have been saved through faith. This is not my doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of any of my works, so that I cannot boast. Friends, I, I pray that you would have confidence in God and not in yourself, that you would know with certainty that it is a gift and it, there's nothing you can do to earn it. All right, let me close by praying over us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift, this gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, and life everlasting. Father, we thank you that it is a gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. 
Lord, bless us as we go. In the name of Jesus, amen.